On behalf of the Independent Research Forum, welcome to everybody to this IRF podcast. I'm Jamie Stewart, and with me today is Callum Thomas from Top Down Charts, and the subject for the podcast, which he's going to help us to understand fully, is that of global policy pivot and the wake-up call to markets. The Independent Research Forum promotes an extensive range of the best independent research providers from all around the world on both macro and micro bases, some of them stock pickers, some of them sector specific, some country region specific, many of them global, but all of them, of course, investment specific and investment related. I'm very pleased that we're joined today by Callum. He is the founder and the managing shareholder of Top Down Charts. His career background is in multi-asset investment management in New Zealand and Australia, with a focus on investment strategy and economics particularly. Top Down Charts is a chart-driven macro research house covering global asset allocation and economics. Callum, a warm welcome to you on behalf of Independent Research Forum and all those who are connected with the forum. First, can we begin with a brief introduction to the service that Top Down Charts provides? And nobody can be better at giving us a, a clear idea of that than you. Yes, absolutely. And uh, thanks for having me. And so basically, um, working with uh, primarily active asset allocators, but um, I do have a quite a broad range of clients, but basically looking to deliver a good mix of uh, risk management input, um, actionable ideas, um, asset allocation research, and what I call meaningful macro insights, where you are not just looking at economics data for the sake of looking at the data, but actually trying to answer the question of um, how do we position portfolios, uh, what kind of asset allocation is the right mix at this macro market moment. And um, I think, you know, what we're going to talk about is going to give a pretty good sense for the kind of things that I look at and, and the way that I look at the world. The service itself is um, report-based, so we have some weekly reports, some monthly reports, um, also hold a weekly Zoom call with clients. And of course, very much I'm happy to talk to clients uh, either by email or call to to answer any specific questions. And uh, on that note, if you have any questions about what we're about to talk to or indeed about the service, uh, definitely uh, be in touch. No, well, thank you very much indeed. That's given us a much more clear and immediate understanding of what is a very interesting and exciting and a very wide world. I'm very grateful to you for that. Thank you. If I may, I'd very much like to ask you a question or two just to become clearer in particular aspects of uh, what you do. And what strikes me first, having referred to it earlier on, is that you talked about a global policy pivot, and that has appeared in your latest weekly report. Can you possibly explore that a little bit further for us and provide some colour and some understanding as to how that functions and how it is relevant for us all? Yes, exactly. So it's quite interesting in terms of actually echoing a theme that I was running with early last year, which is the policy pivot to easing. So it was a policy pivot to easing back in March um, 2020, where it became, to me, very evident, very obvious that we were about to see a global wave of easing. I think 
probably saw um, perhaps greater extent of easing than I initially expected. This new policy pivot theme is basically coming full circle of that. So uh, basically central banks going from providing massive stimulus to now actually beginning to talk about removing some of that stimulus or outright rate hikes. So part of the uh, sort of unique charts or indicators that I've been looking at is uh, tracking interest rate moves of the smaller and developing country central banks. And so these are ones that are particularly sensitive to emerging inflation, uh, the global growth cycle. And um, across those central banks, we've actually counted 24 interest rate hikes so far this year, um, which I think, you know, if you hadn't been paying attention, they would probably take you by surprise. Um, Last year, across that same group, we saw a record uh, number of rate cuts. And uh, now things are definitely turning the corner there. And I like to look at that group because, um, as I alluded to, they tend to move more faster. They tend to be at the leading edge of any global interest rate cutting or hiking cycle. And um, and so basically these guys are the first ones to move on the, the hiking side. And actually, strictly speaking, we, we you could argue that the Fed followed in their steps um, in, a, in a very subtle way last week. The, the main reason why I believe that we're, we're moving globally more towards stimulus withdrawal interest rate hikes is uh, the the background thesis, which is that we get global growth rebound um, driven by reopening, fiscal monetary stimulus, the savings pent up demand aspect, um, and that yes, we're seeing some short term spike in inflation, but um, I'm quite focused on the the medium term pickup in inflation, which is almost certainly going to come through um, following this uh, global growth rebound. I think you've done a miraculous job there because the terminology global policy pivot could imply anything at all. But what you've now done is to bestow four dimensions on it and make it completely comprehensible and put it into context. Thank you very much indeed for that. It leads me on to asking you about something particular, which is that you've recently made the point that central banks are in the process of transitioning from suppression or suppressors of volatility to sources of volatility. This is an obviously an important point, particularly with what's going on with the US at the moment and the, um, the central banking policy there. What exactly do you mean by that? And how should investors understand that and interpret it? Hmm. Yes, exactly. And um, I think that that's really is the, the key way to capture what's going on now is that last year, it was all about suppressing volatility. So pouring unprecedented amounts of monetary easing into the system, liquidity, all sorts of experimental measures. Uh, we saw quantitative easing become very much a standard tool almost across the globe with uh, at least 20 different central banks adopting quantitative easing. So it's gone from uh, what, what was once a relatively experimental tool to now a completely mainstream tool. So last year it was all about supporting the economy trying to paint over the cracks, trying to provide economic life support. But this year, it's um, now, it's certainly we're starting to see is um, that monetary policy is more of a source of volatility. And I think that last week probably provided the best demonstration of that, that even though the Fed shift was really quite subtle, it was uh, some some people might might argue that it doesn't really matter that the, the Fed said we're, we're going to think about hiking interest rates in 2023 instead of 2024. 
and it was subtle but then the impact of it was definitely not subtle um, the the volatility waves across different asset classes um, really provides to me a hint of um, this uh, of that statement becoming real and I think also it was the first kind of wake-up call to investors that quantitative easing low rates um, monetary excess it's not actually here forever it's not a permanent thing the fed hasn't got you back you know all the way um, they might when it's convenient to them and that that uh that this all this monetary easing will come to an end at some point because um cycles are probably one of the most um true and reliable things that we can um, look at and use as investors and so from an investing standpoint that means that risk is um, basically permanently elevated from here we've kind of passed out of the easy part of the cycle now following on from what you've been explaining to us there and you with your experience in asset allocation investment yourself but speaking particularly on behalf of the asset allocators and investors who will be absorbing all that you say how do you personally think that anybody with asset allocation investment responsibilities on an institutional basis at the moment should be positioned? And what would you be looking for and therefore suggest that others in that position look for in terms of recognizing and coping with structural defensiveness? So how does one deal with the concept of um, being structurally defensive at the moment of this complicated period of development? Yeah, that's a really good question, and I think um, probably most people are really uh, struggling with this issue at the moment. Where there's there's a lot of charts or indicators, pieces of data that might make you perhaps a bit increasingly uncomfortable. So, for instance, record high valuations in in U.S. equities, um, but at the same time, it's as a institutional asset allocator you probably don't have the luxury of being underexposed um, to a rising, what, what could potentially still be a rising market for quite some time. So to me, it's uh, still selectively overweight risk assets. So definitely it's that time of the cycle where it is, where you become a bit more nuanced in the allocation. So to me, that's still preferring global XUS um, in terms of equities. Uh, still prefer emerging markets but specifically uh, emerging excluding asia so non-asia emerging markets just because of the uh, valuation uh, relative valuation opportunities there and also still um, overweight commodities i think that there's still uh, definitely some ways to go there and then on the on the underweights it's basically underweight bonds because you know despite the move that we've had so far it's that treasury is still substantially overvalued macro indicators still point to higher yields from here so still selectively overweight and definitely paying more attention to um, the framework for how to think about how this cycle eventually evolves um, you know i think going into this um, market crisis or whatever we want to call it it was quite unfamiliar in many respects but coming out of this you know there's a lot there's a, a bit more familiarity in terms of um, looking at the traditional indicators, valuation, cycle, policy, and so. Um, so for me, it's uh, to to turn structurally defensive to 
pull back to neutral or, and, and, and then ultimately go overweight bonds and cash. Um, to me, what you need to be looking for is one valuation. So, um, and we've got kind of one tick of the box there because in absolute terms, they are starting to look expensive, but the equity risk premium is still positive. So definitely keeping a close eye on the equity risk premium. From a cycle standpoint, we're still in the upswing phase, arguably not quite in the overheating and definitely not rolling over yet. And then um, on the policy front, uh, as I mentioned, we're we're starting to turn the corner there, but not not yet into outright tightening, at least as far as uh, the major central banks. So really what I would want to see would be extreme overvaluation, um, the cycle getting too overheated, rolling over, and policy, monetary policy tightening, fiscal policy tightening. And then from there, it's just rounding it out on with the, the tactical indicators, so sentiment, technicals, positioning flows. And uh, yeah, to me, that it's just really paying more and more attention to that and really uh, making sure that we're looking at the right charts and indicators. Well, following on from that, and you've, you've mentioned a lot of vital aspects of markets which people will be focusing on with, without any doubt at all, um, and at a period where there is definitely risk awareness in evidence and there are factors in play which is going to enhance that risk awareness, does your doctrine indicate any particular undervalued assets which you think offer a positive and attractive risk-reward prospect in the market, just particularly in case it does turn down in specific or general um, respects. Yes, absolutely. So, um, and this is one thing that I think that people probably aren't paying that much attention to. And so, um, yeah, value versus growth is fairly well understood, but what I think people don't really dig into enough is looking at the split, that, that there's a very clear split within value, and that's between cyclical value and defensive value. And so cyclical value, you know, that's fairly straightforward um, and that's definitely going to be benefiting in the current environment. But if we think about defensive value, so specifically we're talking consumer staples, utilities, healthcare, they're trading at relative valuations. So we're talking US specifically here. Uh, they're trading at relative valuations versus the S&P 500 at uh, levels that we last saw around the year 2000, which was um, basically the bottom of their um, performance cycle at that point. And so with and with these such strong, compelling relative value, it's really um, just a matter of timing. And, um, you know, when the valuation argument, or when, when valuations reach such an extreme, they kind of have this tendency to, to sort of speak for themselves and definitely... Um, weigh in on the risk return outlook. So, for me, it's um, it's it's a sector or a group of sectors that will certainly outperform uh, in the next correction or bear market. And so, as we do get later in the cycle, um, you know, having a greater allocation to that or even a relative position there is um, probably going to make sense. And in a way, following on from what you've clarified for us there. Um, the mirror image uh, question that occurs to me as being of interest to everybody is, what do you think there is by way of big significant risks, which, given the circumstances at the moment, investors are tending to ignore or underestimate at the moment, and which may come home to roost, and where you would issue a word or two or three of, of warning? Mm. 
Yes, um, definitely a good question. And so I think um, there's probably two two things that come to mind. So first of all would be that, um, as I mentioned before, the equity risk premium is still um, positive. It's uh, the way that I look at it, though, it's still it's basically giving a neutral valuation signal. And if we have Treasury yields going up further, say, 2.5 to 3 percent, that that takes the equity risk premium into expensive um, territory you know, in terms of the valuation signal. And that w- would potentially bring us into a late 2018 style type of uh, significant market correction. But the other key risk um, that you know, I'm increasingly doing work on is the idea that you know, we, we could potentially see some kind of secondary crisis. So really um, basically looking back at 2008 and the um, aftermath of 2008, for, for instance, the European debt crisis, which in many ways was a secondary crisis or a flow-on crisis from the, the global financial crisis. And so the, probably the key candidate there would be, or the one, the most obvious one, would be some sort of stress across emerging markets. And um, yeah, we can get into that in a bit more detail, perhaps a different time, but the, the key risk indicator that I'd be looking at for that would be EMFX. And so I look at a equal weighted index of 25 different emerging market currencies and look at, among other things, the, the breadth of um, performance across those currencies. And, uh, you know, following last week, we did actually have um, a bit of a orange traffic light signal coming up there. So it's um, definitely something that I'm paying uh, increasing attention to in, in the immediate term as well. Now, that's a very, that's a very interesting way of, saying, of seeing it. Thank you very much for that. Now, at different stages in what you've been telling us about, there have been completely understandable and gladly received references to the current topical points of sovereign debt servicing and reducing the imbalances, low interest rates and uh, inflation emerging at the moment, and the inevitable prospect of higher interest rates in due course, which you've very kindly and very efficiently referred to. Um, Given the underlying contradictions of the imbalances in that group of factors, is there anything that you could add particularly, which the uh, charts tell us at the moment may be happening or not happening as a result of the difficulty of getting those points to to balance against each other? Well, I think the point that I would probably pick up there is um, about the sovereign debt levels. um, And and we definitely very clearly see how across the OECD economies, the uh, level of debt to GDP has actually doubled, like completely doubled since um, since 2008. And one sort of side side note along that, and I, I'm, I'm actually talking about a very specific chart, it maps the debt to GDP across the OECD economies against their revenue as a percentage of GDP. So basically, you could think of that as a rough measure of their effective tax or economy-wide tax rate. And so the economy-wide tax rate since 2008 has gone sideways. It hasn't increased um, at all. And uh, that probably brings us to that uh, very topical issue of uh, minimum global tax rate where um, the G7 has uh, agreed to at least uh, 
think about or attempt to impose a global minimum tax rate of 15%. And, um, you know, if I look across global equities, the way I calculated the effective tax rate across time is it's been actually trending down for the last three decades. And that's, of course, been a tailwind to global equities um, with regards to improving, you know, after-tax earnings. Uh, Going forward, though, the fact that there is this high debt load, the fact that there is this uh, um, political and social will to maybe turn the corner or at least uh, try and make uh, companies pay, you know, quote-unquote their fair share, it's, um, you know, the, the trend of falling effective tax rates, I would say that that trend is definitely coming to an end. And um, again, it's sort of like, you know, as we get later in the policy tightening monetary policy cycle, if we also have rising effective tax rates, then that uh, that only will, will, will sort of make things a little bit more difficult and, uh, you know, skew risks definitely um, to the downside. No, well, thank you very much on that. The only other thing to add which your, where your view would be very much valued, I know, is what sounds like a simple question, but in your view, are charts and graphics more like a fundamental or more like a technical discipline in terms of market analysis and forecasting, or do you think it shouldn't be counted as either technical or fundamental, but is a, a field of analytic approach and discipline and ability on its own, which should be counted as a third field of skill? I prefer to shun dogmatism, this tendency of people to be, I'm only a fundamental analyst or, you know, technical analysis piece. Um, I don't have time for people that are, you know, <laughs> that are quite insular or polarized in their views on that. For me, it's all about pragmatism. There's elements of fundamental analysis which add zero value that, that, that don't that aren't helpful at all. Um, and there's also elements of technical analysis that are um, just a bit too ethereal or um, a bit too uh, mystical. Um, so for me, it's about taking a pragmatic approach. You know, we're trying to build a puzzle. We're trying to trying to make money ultimately and and so it's if, if, if a piece of data, if a certain type of chart, a certain type of indicator, certain type of information um, helps to build out the, the picture, helps to raise conviction levels, then it's good. If it doesn't, then, um, you know, it's, it's bad by definition, but unless it, you know, somehow or another gives us some sort of little bit of um, snippet that we can hold on to in the back of our minds and call on to later. So I mean, it's, yeah, really about you want to make this job easier. So you want to be using all the different tools um, rather than limit yourself to one. Callum, the moment's come really to thank you very much indeed, more than one can express on behalf of the Independent Research Forum and everybody connected with IRF for what has been a remarkable overview of top-down charts. Um, Your experience has come through throughout and has been invaluable. You've given us clear and expert insight into the investment strategy and the projects which can be covered by charts. The prospects are excellent. And uh, the points you made about the global policy pivot and so on will be a new idea for a lot of people. And I think they'll pick that up and run with it. Overall, what you've done is to create a three-dimensional appreciation of graphic disciplines, which are usually understood on no more than a two-dimensional basis. And that's an enormous and genuine compliment to you. 
one can, of course, refer to a number of the individual points that you made, for example, what you were able to tell us about central banks and the um, origination of the suppression of volatility in this uh, time of debt and inflation and interest rates and so on, which nobody is sure about. And those um, individual topics that you dealt with, I think, are invaluable for everyone. And the recognition of the risk profiles rising was another point which you referred to two or three times. And I think people will have reached out for that with a lot of energy because it's exactly what people are looking at at the moment. But it really has been kind of you. You've been very efficient indeed. Thank you very much on behalf of everybody who's been involved.